Uh, to be perfectly honest, when I started looking at degrees, subjects, and I picked environmental science, one of the things that really appealed to me was you know, looking at pictures doing field, people doing field work. And I thought, well, that looks great, like a job where you can go out and measure stuff. Hello, and welcome to We Persist, a podcast that shares the stories of incredible people from all different backgrounds in the earth, ocean, and environmental sciences. I crossed paths and became running buddies with Claire back in June of 2018 at the Polar 2018 conference in Davos, Switzerland. I spoke with Claire back in 2018 following the conference. Hello, today we are speaking with Claire Ayers, a research scientist studying sea ice at New York University, Abu Dhabi. And um, could you start out by just introducing yourself again in like a more extensive sense and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, hi. Uh, so thank you for inviting me to talk on your podcast, Mariama. So I'm a research scientist studying at New York University Abu Dhabi, which is an interesting place to be studying sea ice because I'm based in the desert in, uh, yeah, a long way away from either pole. But I'm interested in Antarctic sea ice, and that's what I'm working on at the moment. I actually uh, came to studying Antarctic sea ice from quite a, a not a conventional route. Um, so I was born and grew up in Zimbabwe, which is a landlocked country, and from there developed a fascination with oceanography. So my undergraduate degree it was in environmental sciences at the University of East Anglia, Norwich in the UK. And while there, I did a lot of courses related to oceanography, uh, also meteorology and hydrology I was interested in, but mostly in oceanography. And my undergraduate dissertation was in coastal oceanography. I guess growing up in a landlocked country, I was just really fascinated by the sea because it was something that you know we only ever went to on holiday. We had to fly somewhere to go and see a beach. Then after I finished my uh, undergraduate degree, I continued with an MSc in environmental coastal engineering, uh, continuing with the coastal oceanography aspect that I was interested in. And after that, I started looking for jobs, but this was just at the time in the UK. I was hoping to have a job in an environmental consultancy. This is a time in the UK where they had a big um, crash in the markets and there were really, really few consultancy jobs around. So needing to get employment, I took a job as a, a school teacher, secondary school teacher, teaching maths and science at a school in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. So that was my first introduction to the Middle East. Wow, that's so exciting. <laughs> different, yeah. So de definitely not your average uh, route. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just before going to do a, a teaching course, um, my, my daughter was born, so I took a couple of years off at home with her. And when I went to go and start the teaching course, when she was just about to turn two, I realized that I was going to be putting like, all the money that I was earning into nursery care. And I realized I didn't like this job well enough to do that. So I sat back and had to think about what it is that I really wanted to do. And I then found a PhD at uh, University of East Anglia studying coastal processes. So we went back, back to the coast, back to coastal oceanography, which I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and there I studied um, how the movement of offshore sandbanks affects beaches. So a sandbank in front of a beach can be a protection for the shoreline. 
um, off the coast of East Anglia is very sandy sediment and they have really large sandbanks that move around a lot. So I was just looking at how these sandbanks move and what kind of protection they afford the shoreline. Um, so I did a lot of modelling for that. Uh, so modelling waves, tides uh, and sediment transport. Uh, can you explain a little bit about the modeling process? Like you were using computers to model the process? Yes. Yes. So I was using um, a program called Telemac. That uh, So it's a computer program and you basically develop a, um, a model of your domain by putting in a bathymetry um, and then you add boundary conditions for uh, tidal currents um, and you can add waves on top of that. And also it has a module where you can look at sediment transport so how sediment changes over time um so yes it was a model based in fortran so which mm. ran on the system there at the university then after finishing my phd um, i got a job opportunity by now as a modeler um, working for cfas which is the center for environment fisheries and agricultural sciences uh, which is a um an agency that works for DEFRA uh, in the UK. DEFRA is the Department of Environment, um, Fisheries and Agriculture. Um, and there I worked as an ecosystem modeler. So developing models um, for European shelf seas that model everything from phytoplankton, uh, so no fish, so nothing that can swim around, but anything that can move with the currents we could include in the models. So things like, uh, yeah, diatoms, phytoplankton, nutrients, so looking at how nutrients move around shelf seas. So there I worked on a project where we looked at the fate of riverine nutrients in the North Sea and where particular rivers might cause eutrophication for various regions around the coast. Eutrophication is where you have too many nutrients in the water column, so you get uh, just a build-up of um, it's going to build up of these nutrients and it can cause problems because you've just got too much stuff in the water column. So it affects the light and it just makes it difficult for organisms to live if you have too much nitrate, for example, mm -hmm. in, in the water column. So I was at CFAS for four years working as an ecosystem modeler. Um, and then I decided it was time to you know, move on and find another job. And I managed to get a job working for the European Commission based at the uh, Joint Research Centre in Ispra in Italy. Which was fantastic. So yeah. not only was I continuing being an ecosystem modeler, but I was doing it based in Italy, which I felt incredibly lucky to be able to do. Uh -huh. So I was based there for three years and continuing to do the same kind of uh, modeling work. So modeling ecosystems, um, again, in Europe, uh, European shelf seas. Um, but there it was a little bit more focused on research for policy. So we would run simulations that could then inform policy decisions. So we did a lot of work for something called the Marine Strategy Framework, which is a directive in in Europe that sets it sets standards for different sorts of things. So like the amount of litter that's in the ocean, or that the amount of uh, yeah eutrophication that's in the in the sea, and it, it kind of helps member states to control what's happening in their seas. Mm -hmm. But that was very interesting because it just gave me a bit more of a policy, a view of you know how science could be used in a way that other people you know they want to know an answer. How can we solve this? What do we need to do? So I would run a model and then I would have to speak to a policy advisor and they would try and translate what I was doing into something that they could then talk to a politician and make a decision about you know, what should be done about X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting, and. When my contract came to an end in Italy, we 
moved here with my husband's job and I didn't have a job so I followed him so I followed him with the family to Abu Dhabi and while I was here a girl that I worked with in Italy was working at New York University Abu Dhabi so I came in to see her and she suggested that I give a seminar so I gave a seminar to the at the Center for Global Sea Level Change and my boss now David Holland offered me a job after the seminar um, and again, he was looking for somebody with some modeling skills. So he wanted someone to model sea ice in Antarctica. Of course, at that stage, I knew absolutely nothing about sea ice or Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, but yeah, so but he offered me a position as a research scientist here in Abu Dhabi, which is how I've ended up being a polar researcher. And I have to say, I love my job. It's such an exciting place to work. Uh, sea ice is obviously a really topical subject at the moment. There's lots in the news about particularly Arctic sea ice because it's declining. Can you define what sea ice is? Okay, yes. So sea ice is actually quite different to land ice. So when you read a lot of articles about ice melting in Antarctica, there they're talking about the land ice, so the ice shells. So this is the ice that's formed by snow, which is then compacted down and forms glaciers. Um, and the glaciers uh, move out towards ice shelves. And that's, that's, the, that's the ice that everyone's worried about that's going to cause sea level rise. Sea ice is actually different. Sea ice is the ocean freezing. And this happens every year. So every year, in, as it starts to get colder in autumn, the ocean starts to freeze. Um, the sea ice actually doesn't have um, salt in it, so it ejects salt from the water uh, as it freezes. Um, but then every year again in the summer, the ice melts. And in particular in Antarctica, that's the case. There's not a lot of multi-year ice in Antarctica. Um, so every year, something like 15 million kilometers squared of ice forms over the winter period. And every year that melts back again, um, in effect, doubling the size of the Antarctic continent um, for that wow. maximum ice period in winter. Um, so when we talk about sea ice melting, that doesn't contribute to global sea level rise because that's just the water that's frozen and then melts again every summer. In fact, I think it's being described by David Attenborough as the largest seasonal cycle on the planet. Wow. And it's an exciting place to be studying. Last July, I went on a research cruise um, on the SA Agalas 2, which is the South African research vessel. I have a collaboration with um, some people at the University of Cape Town, Michelle Viki at uh, the University of Cape Town. And um, I put some wave buoys out in the marginal ice zone in the Southern Ocean, just south of Cape Town. So we headed for the sea ice, put some wave boys out and turned around and came back again. So um, and that was just a fantastic experience just to be A, in sea ice, but B, also in winter. There's very few research vessels go to go to the sea ice in winter just because of the conditions, obviously. Can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> the fieldwork experience there? Yeah, so that was really, really fascinating. Just seeing ice was incredible. Obviously, I look at satellite images a lot. I look at model outputs a lot. I read a lot of papers about sea ice. But really being in a ship just completely surrounded by ice was totally incredible. So we were in the marginal ice zone, which is, is, the, is the transition zone between open ocean and consolidated ice. And at that time of year, there's, just a, there's a lot of what we call pancake ice. So these, they're these big disks of ice that 
sit next to each other. And it was just incredible to watch sort of swell waves coming in and then the whole sea ice uh, just rocking and rolling with waves. Um, but everything really, really peaceful because the, the snow and ice is damping the sound, but big, big waves and a lot of wind blowing as storms come through, which was really, really fascinating. It was just a two-and-a-half-week cruise that I was in, so it was actually quite a nice uh, short introduction to Southern Ocean, which can be very yeah, difficult to be studying in with massive waves all the time. There were quite a lot of people on the vessel that were pretty sick <laughs> for a lot of the trip. Uh, how, um, how big are the waves? So, well, actually, because I was deploying wave boys, I can tell you that at the time of deploying our wave boys, we measured waves over seven meters, and that was about 100 kilometers inshore of the ice edge. So very big waves. Yeah. <laughs> the offshore condition was about 12 meter waves. So it was really quite an experience, but I totally loved, and I really hope that I can get an opportunity to go back there at some point. So we were measuring waves in sea ice because actually what's quite interesting is that although we know there are waves in sea ice and we've measured them, it's been known since Shackleton visited Antarctica that there are waves in sea ice and he observed that as well. But we don't really understand how the waves traveled through the ice. So climate models don't include waves in them at all. So if there is ice in the climate model, then there will be no waves acting. So it's quite important that we try and work out you know, how waves interact with sea ice so that we can include them in the climate models. So do you have any, any thoughts on what introducing waves into the climate models might say for climate models? Like, why are they important as a constraint? So the waves can really affect what the sea ice looks like. Um, so as they come in, they can break break it up into smaller flows. And then that means that the cover is really quite different. So if you have a full consolidated ice, and there's not very much interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean, whereas if you have quite broken up um, mm. ice cover, then you've immediately got a lot more interaction, which has got implications for you know, transfer of things like carbon between the atmosphere and the ocean. So it is important to know, you know what how the waves are traveling and how they are affecting the ice and you know, what is happening to the, to the state of the ice cover. So sea ice or understanding waves through sea ice is really important for modeling climate models, but why are climate models important for the broader public? So modeling sea ice is of interest to the broader public, maybe not necessarily the details of the model that I'm running, but the outputs are certainly of interest, especially if we can get the parameterizations working so that they're taken up by the climate models. So there's a lot of research going into wave modeling in the moment, but that's not being translated yet into the climate models. So the ECMWF model does not at the moment have any waves and sea ice in it. And being able to incorporate that information will improve estimates of how things are changing globally over the, over the next in decades to centuries, and I think that is of interest to the public. I mean, people do need to know how climate is changing. So, yeah, waves and sea ice is one of the really big missing components of climate modelling at the moment. To be able to know what the climate will do in the future. Yes. Grand. 
Okay, great. You've brought us to what you're studying today. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in science in the first place? Like, what made you want to be a research scientist? Yeah, okay, so that's probably quite an interesting question because I, I never set out to be a research scientist, and it's really only in the last couple of years that I, I've sort of come back to academia after working still in science but outside of academia. I always really enjoyed science at school. Science and maths were just the subjects that I liked for some reason. I was more drawn to them, I think possibly just because of an interest in how things work. Those were just the more interesting lessons for me. Uh, To be perfectly honest, when I started looking at degrees subjects and I picked environmental science, one of the things that really appealed to me was looking at pictures doing field people doing field work and I thought well that looks great like a job where you can go out and measure stuff sounds like a really fun job I can totally relate (laughs) so being able to be although I'm you know a lot of my work is modeling I really like the fact that uh, I'm modeling something that I can go and see and witness and observe and collect measurements about and that that's really appealing to me I think that's probably one of the things I really like about science and what's probably always brought me back to it rather than doing something more abstract I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you have any stories or anecdotes of how you've overcome adversity throughout your career? I think that probably the thing that's helped me most through my career is has been other people so mentorship whether mostly unofficial mentorship to be honest but really other people. Um, so some of the things that have been difficult at times through my career uh, haven't always been necessarily related to the actual job I'm doing. At one point, I was on my own with my daughter, so single mum working, and that was quite tough, just trying to juggle everything and try and be in work enough hours and get get everything done. But I think whenever there's been challenging period in my life, there's always been somebody there to help or give advice or yeah, just be supportive. And I think that's really been the real theme for, for everything that's happened. And opportunities that I've, I've uh, taken on have been because people have suggested them to me or I've maybe succeeded an opportunity because someone has helped me prepare for that opportunity. So I really think that it's other people and mentorship that's been really key to me getting to where I am today. Sometimes it's not that you need someone to tell you how to do something. Maybe it's sometimes you just need someone to give your confidence a bit of a boost. And I would say that some of the more important mentors maybe don't even know they were a mentor at the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were just helpful. Um, But I think being able to, yeah, to use other people around you and look for help, maybe listen, listen to people and take advice where you can is really crucial or maybe knowing when not to take advice as well is helpful what are your plans going forward well that's a very difficult question for me to answer because as you know (laughs) i have flitted around doing all kinds of different things so who knows i'm loving my job at the moment um i would really like to continue working on antarctic sea ice for you know for the foreseeable future um i'm planning some more deployments uh, to measure waves over the next few years I'm also very interested in how sea ice, the presence or absence of sea ice affects melting ice shelves as well. So I'd like to get more involved in that. So I guess for the short term, like 
my plans would be to continue hopefully working here for as long as they'll employ me <laughs> to study Antarctic sea ice. But I guess uh, I'll leave a small caveat and I'll say never say never because you never know what exciting opportunity is going to come up. And just because it's slightly off your original goal doesn't mean that you're not going to end up with a great job somewhere fantastic. So I've learned that from experience. One last, last question is how has the heat been in Abu Dhabi? So August was horrible, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> horrible. Uh, so yeah, here we have we have about eight or nine months, which are just fantastic. The winter here is amazing, and you could be outside every day. It hardly ever, it rains two or three days a year. It's just wonderful. The summer here is absolutely awful because it's like high forties and eighty to ninety percent humidity, which is just just terrible let me clarify so, this is high 40 celsius which is even yes, crazier yes yeah. that's in celsius uh, so most people try and go away in the summer and in fact uh, one advantage of working in antarctica is that the winter season that i'm interested in working measuring waves and sea ice is in july so that's another good reason to be studying waves and sea ice that's a great point <laughs> escape the abu dhabi summer <laughs> Nice. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and good luck in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Mariella. Yeah, thanks. It was so fun hearing about Claire's journey leading to where she is now, operating as an Antarctic sea ice scientist, as well as about the importance of mentorship and friendship in getting through challenging times. If you want to follow Claire on Twitter, she can be found at at Coughlin Claire. That's at C-O-U-G-H-L-A-N-C-L-A-R-E. Thanks again for listening. Check out our website at letsdosomethingbig.weebly.com or connect with us on Instagram at LDSBIG. Have a good day. Content was produced and edited by Mariama Dryak. The cover art for the We Persist podcast is created by Emma Henry, and the music for today's episode is from Purple Planet Music.